So our passage today is Luke chapter 7, um, which you can find in page 886. When Jesus had finished saying all these to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on. And the bearer stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praise praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So we're going to jump to verse 36. And we'll go through the rest of chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, 
I suppose the one that had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she had poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins, who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you, who are your heroes of the faith? So who are the, the men and women in your life who inspire you, who encourage you, who encourage you to love Jesus a bit more? On the screen are some pictures of uh, some of my heroes of the faith. See if you recognize them. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, top left. He was the, uh, the great uh, Baptist preacher in the UK. Uh, he preached his first sermon the day after he was converted. And apparently he preached a sermon every day of his Christian life except the day he died. He said this, my faith... My faith rests not on who I am, or what I shall be, or how I feel, or what I know. My faith rests in who Christ is, and what Christ has done, and what Christ is doing in my life today. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. As you read about Spurgeon, as you hear him preach, what you understand is this, that for Spurgeon, God is so big. Spurgeon's God is massive, and he can do immeasurably more than he asked or imagined. As you read Spurgeon, you understand that he is small. He sees himself as a nobody loved by a, by a very big God. In the middle there is George Muller. He lived in the 1800s in the UK. He's best known for establishing orphanages. He has thousands of orphanages, not asking for a cent. He said this, I look to God. I lean on God, I see myself as nothing, and God to be everything to me. The top uh, right is Hudson Taylor, the guy who spent 51 years taking the gospel to China. Uh, he says something like this, all of God's giants are just weak people serving a great God, knowing that God is with them. I'll go more quickly. Koi Tenboom, who inspires me with her faith to keep trusting God in the most awful situations. She said this, never be afraid to trust an, un an unknown future to a known God who is so, so good. Uh, William Carey, who took the gospel to India, the founder of the modern mission movement, he said that famous phrase, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. John Stott, one of the most influential men in my Christian life, his books, his preaching, his commentaries, he said this about faith. Every time I look at the cross, 
Christ says to me, I'm here because of you, John. It's your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying. Nothing in history cuts us down to size like the cross of Christ. I could go on. Charles Simeon, Elizabeth Elliot, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just great men and women of faith. Now what struck me is this. All these people who I love, all these people who inspire me, they, they have a massive view of God. And they see themselves as being very small and insignificant. For them, God is big and they are small. For them, Jesus is, is glorious and they're just wretched sinners serving an extraordinary saviour. I want to ask you, do you have great faith? It's a strange question to ask, but do you have great faith? It's strange because faith in the Bible is actually just a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, it's just given to you by God. And if you read the scriptures, it says verses like, you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and you can do incredible things. So when I ask you, do you have great faith, I'm not actually asking you, how big your faith is, because that's to put the focus on to you. I'm asking you, how big is the God that you have faith in? Do you have faith in a mighty, majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, extraordinary God? Is your God so big that you will trust him with even the smallest details of your life? I want to talk about great faith. Didn't they, in all the Gospels, only two people are commended for great faith. Uh, one is that uh, Syrophoenician woman. And the other is this Gentile, the centurion here in Luke chapter 7. One's a man, one's a woman. And they both have great faith. Uh, Jesus says in verse 9 of our chapter, I tell you, he says... I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Amongst all of God's people, I've been looking for faith, he says, and this man has great faith. So what makes his faith great? What will make your faith great, my faith great? For those who know me, I'm a mathematician, so I decided tonight to write you an equation. Here it is. This is my one, my one point tonight. Great faith equals... An exalted view of Jesus and a lowly view of yourself. That's all it is. If you grasp that tonight, you'll leave with great faith. Jesus is massive, you are small. Jesus is mighty and you are not. Jesus is worthy and you're just helpless. If you grasp that, then you'll leave here with a great faith tonight. Do you want that? Do you want to be known as a person of great faith? Let's meet these three people. The centurion, he had great faith. When Jesus had finished saying all this, some people, uh, some people were listening and he entered Capernaum. That's strange because Capernaum is known as a place of unbelief. But in Capernaum, he finds a man of great faith. He's a centurion, verse 2, so he is a man of authority. He's a soldier. He has a hundred Soldiers under him. He's a Gentile. He's not Roman because you didn't have Roman soldiers until about AD 44. 
but he's a caring man. He's got this servant who is sick and is about to die, and he cares for that man. He could have said, it's okay, I've got 99 other soldiers, I can lose one. He cares about this man, so he's heard of Jesus, verse 3. We, we don't know how he heard of Jesus. Maybe he heard from the other famous man in Capernaum whose son was healed in John chapter 4. We don't know. He, he's culturally sensitive, verse 3, so he is a Gentile, and so he doesn't go to Jesus. He sends Jewish elders to meet Jesus. But the big thing is there in verse 3. He asked Jesus to come and heal his servant. He is confident that Jesus could heal. Not that Jesus will heal, there's no guarantee of that, but Jesus is able to heal. Jesus has a power over sickness and the power over suffering. That's the Jesus he believes in. This man, he could have gone to a doctor. He could have gone to a naturopath. He could have gone to Dr. Google. He doesn't go to any of those places. He goes to Jesus. Because Jesus has the, the power to heal. He's a generous man, verse 5. He's used his money to build a synagogue. So he's a good, God-fearing, generous, caring, culturally sensitive man. He's a good man. He's worthy, isn't he? He's worthy of Jesus' love, isn't he? That's what verse 4, verse four says. These elders come to Jesus and they say, this man is worthy. This man deserves to have you do this, Jesus. That's how the world sees this man. Good, generous, kind and worthy of Jesus' love. Is that how you see yourself? Worthy of Jesus' love? Deserving of his favour? What really struck me this week is that the world says this man is worthy but this man knows that he's not worthy. Do you spot that in verse 6? Lord, Jesus, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, Jesus. That's, that's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to enter my presence. I'm not worthy to be near you, Jesus. He's not saying he's worthless. He's not saying that he's worth nothing. He's not self-condemning. He just says, compared to you, Jesus, Jesus, you are glorious and you are mighty and you are powerful and to come into your presence, I am not worthy. Do you remember Peter a few weeks ago kneeling before Jesus saying, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That is a servant. That is the centurion. We're going to take communion tonight and before we do it, we'll say the prayer of humble access. It's a beautiful prayer. It says this, We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our righteousness, but in your many and great mercies. We are not worthy. We are not worthy to gather the crumbs under your table. But you, Lord, are the same, whose nature is always to have mercy. I love this centurion because he's understood that He's a good man, yes, but compared to others, he's even better. But he's, he's not worthy of Jesus. He's not pretending to be wonderful. And I find that refreshing. Small view of himself, but a big view of Jesus. Because he says in verse 7, do you see it? 
he says to Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. You don't need to touch this man. I believe you can just speak and he'll be healed. You have that power. You have that authority, Jesus. That's how big his Jesus is. Is your Jesus that big? He can heal. He can save. He has that authority. He has that power. He can do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine. You've got to be humble before God, you know. Please don't come to God big noting yourself. One of my favorite songs is, uh, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. You're my one defense and my righteousness. Oh, Lord, how I need you. Like the centurion saying, I can do nothing without you, God. I'm not worthy of your healing. I'm not worthy of your forgiveness. I'm not worthy of your compassion. I'm not worthy of your love. I'm not worthy, but Jesus, you are infinitely worthy. And you can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Do you have that kind of big God? I love the story of the, the professor of a Bible college. And every year after his students graduated, he went to visit their church Sunday by Sunday, just worked around the year to hear them preach a sermon in their church. Uh, one Sunday morning he was in his church and this ex-student had just preached and his professor came up to him and said, I won't bother hearing you again preaching. He was quite offended by that. He said, no, that's a compliment. He says, oh, I, I categorize my students into big godders and little godders, and you're a big godder. I've heard you preach today, and you've got a big God, and you talked a lot about God and how glorious God is and how mighty God is, and you talked a little about yourself, but not too much about yourself. And I trust now that if you keep preaching like that, then God will grow his church. Sadly, I keep hearing students preach, and I call them little godders, because they talk lots about themselves and tell lots of stories, but little about God. And their God is so weak and so puny that they feel like they need, he needs their help to grow his church. And I hope you're a big Godder. I hope you come to Jesus expecting amazing things from him because your God is so big and your God is so mighty. I think our kids teach us that, just to ask God these incredible things because they just believe that God is so powerful. That's a centurion. He believed that Jesus had the power to heal. But faith isn't just for male Gentiles. Faith is also for all people. The next person we meet is quite different. She's a woman and she's Jewish. And she's grieving. Verse 11, afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain. That's about six miles southeast of Nazareth. He takes a crowd with him and his crowd are happy and they are cheering and they're excited and they bump into another crowd in verse 12 but this other crowd near the city gates they are wailing and they're grieving and they're mourning. They're at a funeral and a dead person is being carried out verse 12 because in those days they just carry the, the dead body on a piece of wood. And we discover in verse 12 this is tragic. He's the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Doesn't your heart break for that woman? She's lost her husband, she's lost her son. 
No one needs to tell this woman that she is, she is lowly. She's fully aware she's a nobody. The words to describe this widow are desperate, helpless, hopeless, and in despair. And it seems like no one cares. But that is not true, is it? Please never think no one cares for you. Because Jesus cares. Verse 13 oozes compassion. When the Lord, when Jesus saw this helpless, desperate, hopeless, despairing widow, when he saw her, with his eyes, he looked at her and his heart melted. His heart was yearning for her. His heart went out for her. He feels her hurt. He feels her pain. Is your Jesus like that? Do you, do you believe in a Jesus who feels your pain deeply? He knows your hurts. He sees. He knows. He cares. And he says to the woman, verse 13, don't cry. Don't weep. Now, he's not being insensitive there. He's not saying, come on, woman, pull yourself together. He's saying, woman, I'm here. I have the power, trust me. I have the power not just to heal the sick, but the power to raise the dead. Do you believe me? And so Jesus shows in action, verse 14, he went up and he, he touched the plank of wood where the, the dead body is lying because that is horrendous. It would render him unclean. And then he just spoke. I wonder how he spoke. Young man, I say to you, get up. Young man, get up, he says. Jesus speaks and the dead are raised. Jesus speaks and, and power and life come back to dead things. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And it's beautiful. Jesus gave him back to his mother because Jesus does that. He restores dignity. He restores hope. Do you believe that about Jesus? That he has the power? The power not to heal sick but to raise the dead. At a word. Now what did this woman do in this story? Look at your Bibles. What did this woman do? And the answer is nothing. No one is saying to this woman, this widow, oh wow, you are so worthy and you are so special and you are amazing and you are a somebody and you can do great things for God. Because I think that's a 21st century phenomenon to tell people how wonderful they are. This woman isn't even asking, isn't asking Jesus for help. She's just so desperate and Jesus sees her in her hour of need because that's how glorious Jesus is. What about the boy in this story, the dead boy? What did he do in this story? Nothing. He just lay there. He was dead. And I don't think Jesus is saying, oh, look what a good corpse you are. I've never seen such a fine corpse in all of Israel. He's utterly, utterly helpless and you've got to grasp that about yourself. Before God, you are helpless. Nothing in your hand can you bring. But when you come to Jesus empty-handed, and when you come to Jesus desperate, he meets you. He sees you. He cares. And yeah, he promises you that he will raise you from the dead. Do you believe that the, 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 uh, the tomb was empty? Do you believe that Jesus is not on a cross anymore, but the tomb was empty, and that Jesus has a power on that last day to raise you back to life? Do you believe that? 
spent time with a man this week who did believe that. Uh, he's an Iranian convert from Muslim to Christianity. He was going for his religious protection visa. And I met with his lawyers on Monday night and his lawyer said, just to prepare you for this meeting, they're going to ask you whether you're scared to go back to Iran as a Christian. And he said, oh, I'm not scared. He said, no, that's the wrong answer. Now, it is dangerous for you. He said, it is dangerous. If I walk back into Iran, it is dangerous for me as a Christian and I could be killed for my faith. But I'm not scared of that because I know who I believe in. I know Jesus has the power to raise you from the dead. I know where I'm heading. And so they can kill me if they send me back. I thought, wow, there's a man of great faith. He really believes that Jesus has the power to raise him from the dead on that last day and give him eternal life. The centurion had faith, the widow had faith, and this sinful woman had faith. Striking, isn't it? She's just known as a sinful woman. That's how she's known for all of eternity, the sinful woman. But you know, I think she liked that. She's happy to be called the sinful woman because she's got a great saviour. It's not about her, it's all about Jesus. Verse 36. When one of the Pharisees, his name is Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he doesn't really want to know Jesus. He's just there to test him. Let's stop there. The Pharisees are good people. They're upright people. They fast, they tithe, they pray, they read their Bible. But there's no sense of need. They have a very high view of themselves. Contrast that with the woman in verse 37. And she walks into this dinner party. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. We don't know what she did. She could have been a prostitute. But she goes there looking for Jesus. She hears Jesus is there and she goes prepared. She comes with her alabaster jar of perfume. And when she encounters Jesus, she is overwhelmed, isn't she? As she stood behind Jesus, she begins to weep. She begins to cry. I presume there are, are tears of joy or tears of amazement or tears of wonder. She's in the presence of her Savior. And as she weeps, her tears wet Jesus' feet. And then she lets down her hair. That would have been controversial. And she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair and she kisses Jesus' feet and she pours perfume on Jesus' feet. And here is a woman who is so in love with Jesus. It's not about her. It's all about Jesus. So why does she need Jesus? Because the answer is there in verse 39. She's a sinner. That's the word the whole town used to describe this woman. Sinner, 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 sinner. She knows she's a sinner. And I hope you do too. I hope you're not sitting here tonight thinking, oh, well, I'm quite a good person. I come to church, I read my Bible, say my prayers. In the eyes of a holy God, we're all sinners. I am and you are. But our glorious Jesus, our big Jesus, is offering us forgiveness. He says to the woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Look at that word, are. Your sins are definitely forgiven. I guarantee you, you don't have to pay anything for your sins anymore because they're gone, they're clean, they're washed. You stand as white as snow. 
How can he say that? Verse 49, who can forgive sins but God alone? Because Jesus is God. And Jesus says to the woman, your faith, your belief, your trust has saved you. Go in peace, you are forgiven. She loves Jesus so much, doesn't she? She anoints him, she adores him, she's full of gratitude. Why? Because she has grasped how big her sins were and how much she's been forgiven. And that's the whole point of that little parable. Two people both owe a debt, one 500, one 50. Both debts are cancelled, both debts are forgiven. Which of them will love him more, he says, and Simon says, oh, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And you're supposed to feel the ouch factor there. Because Simon the Pharisee thinks his debt is quite small in comparison. And if you go through life thinking your debt is small to God, then you'll have a small view of God and a small love for Jesus. If you go through life understanding your debt was massive, then you have a glorious view of Jesus. And you'll say, wow, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. You love much because you've been forgiven much. It always strikes me, you know, that this woman was so almost over the top, isn't she? You can imagine her friends and family saying, oh, that's a bit over the top. Why do you give Jesus all your best perfume? And why are you weeping, woman? Get over it. Be a bit more reserved in your faith, maybe. A bit more English, a bit stiff upper lip. There is nothing wrong with having such a depth of love for Jesus that you're overflowing with gratitude. It's okay to weep when you understand how much he's forgiven you. It's okay to give Jesus your best because he expects that. The more you understand how much you've been forgiven, the more that you will want to love Jesus with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. I remember when I first became a Christian, and my, fam- my family and my friends used the word fanatical. And I was. Because I'd found the greatest thing ever. His name was Jesus. And I wanted to praise him, and I wanted to serve him, and I wanted to adore him, because I understood how big he was and how much he loved me. To be honest, I can never understand why Christian men or women have this kind of reserved response to Jesus. How can we stand here and sing things like, I stand amazed in his presence of Jesus and Nazarene and wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned and clean, without saying, wow, how glorious, how wonderful, praise God. Maybe it's because you haven't understood how much you've been forgiven. I long for us to have great faith. And when we do, we'll just want to keep, keep pointing people to Jesus. He needs to be bigger, we need to be smaller. All about Jesus, less about us. I'll finish with this story. It's a true story. Years ago, I knew a man named Glenn who'd been in prison for years for drug dealing. Uh, One night in the emptiness of his soul, he wandered into the prison chapel and he heard the good news that Jesus Christ saved sinners. There, as he later learned, at that very same moment, his mother was at home on her knees praying for her 
her wayward son. At exactly the same time, Glenn got down his knees and received Jesus Christ as his saviour. And his life was so dramatically transformed, he just longed for others to know how big and glorious Jesus was. One summer night after his release from jail, he and I walked along the boardwalk in Seal Beach, California. We could hardly carry on a conversation because every time we passed someone, Glenn would stop and tell that person about Jesus. One time I was sitting in a restaurant when Glenn walked in and spotted me across the room and he yelled out, Praise the Lord, Brother Steve. Jesus died for us. We're forgiven. And since he had everyone's attention, he stopped at every booth on the way where he announced to every person in that restaurant that Jesus Christ saved him from sins and handed them a track and said, Here, read this. He sat down and I felt a bit ashamed that my love for Jesus wasn't quite so fervent. He said this, Steve, I've been, I have been forgiven so, so much. And I love Jesus so, so much. It's not rocket science, is it? When you grasp how small you are and how big Jesus is, how much you need forgiveness and how much he gives forgiveness, that you live your whole life wanting Jesus to be big and you to be small.